everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kelly. I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottkiwi.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week in the podcast, Jennifer Batten, guitar legend. Now Jennifer, of course, was famous for playing with Michael Jackson for a period of 10 years in the 80s and 90s. She's played with Jeff Beck, she's had solo albums, and she's a phenomenal player in general. And I'm very, very excited to speak to Jennifer today because I am a massive fan to get an insight into what it was like to perform with Michael Jackson on the highest possible level. Now joining me this week is Paula Weir, the singer from the I Foundation, so a band who are gaining such a big reputation in and around Glasgow for playing reggae. That's absolutely right. Paula is here. How are you, Paula? I'm well, thank you. I'm good. Great stuff. Now, Paula, tell us all about the I Foundations. Well, we're a seven-piece lovers rock reggae band. A lovers rock reggae band. Yeah, we're we're a quite a, a good mix between the two. We've got the heavier kind of rockersy sound, and then we've got the really soulful harmony lovers rock side of it. So what's going on? Are you guys in the studio at the moment? Are you got plans to go into the recording studio? What's happening? Yeah, we're heading down to a wee studio down in Bells Hills to do a wee bit of live stuff. Um, we've got a couple of songs we're quite keen to get a nice live kind of sweet sound recording from. So that's what we're doing in the next couple of weeks. Great stuff. And I was looking at online earlier, at some of the reviews, and everybody keeps going on about the, the live show and how much, how energetic it is. And also, I was reading about the O2 Arena. You guys played the O2. What was going on? Um, we Well, in the first year, we uh, got together. We got nominated for Best British Reggae Band, and we headed down to the O2 we came in second and it was just fantastic. It so you got to play really... the O2. What was that experience like? Oh, it was amazing. The people we met, the contacts that, that we got out of it was just incredible. It was just so amazing to go down there and play in front of people that are really respective of that kind of soulful, kind of lovers rocky, reggae sound. And it was it was an honour. It was great. And it's great that you've joined us in this particular episode because I know that you were desperate to get on because we've got Jennifer Batten coming up on the podcast. Yeah, I can't wait to see what she's going to have to tell us, you know. She's going to have some really good stuff to hopefully help us in our young career, so that would be great. Great stuff, Paula. And not only is Paula joining us this week, we've got my good friend Mike Smith on the line. How's it going, Mike? It's going well, how are you? Uh, you know me, Mike, can't complain, but the reason that we've got Mike on this particular podcast, obviously, given that it's Michael Jackson related, we've got Jennifer Batten on, bear in mind, Mike and I are setting up, I don't know, I suppose it is a little bit of a Michael Jackson tribute act, Mike, I mean, what do you want to tell people about the idea of this tribute act? Well, it's basically all saxophones, so it's actually a saxophone quintet, and... Um, we're just doing arrangements of famous Michael Jackson songs, and we're going to call it the Saxon Five. <laughs> Why exactly are you laughing, Paula, at this? What's the problem? 
Because that doesn't sound bizarre at all. What? What, this sax quartet? Quintet. Quintet's five. <laughs> quartet's four. Keep right. going. No, don't. Right? Because it, i tell you what's happening here, ladies and gentlemen. Ron was about to stop there because Paula can't tell the difference between a quartet and a quintet, but we're going to continue. So the nation now knows that you've got faults in that different area. Paula's maybe, actually maybe switched off already and she's on Facebook and her phone. But to be serious, right, what do you think of the idea of this, this, this Michael Jackson quintet with the saxophones? Playing the Michael Jackson stuff? I'll tell you the truth behind this, everybody. Mike and I were having a conversation on Skype yesterday. And this is the absolute truth. And we were joking around saying, how funny would it be to start a Jackson... Michael Jackson tribute no. act, all saxophones, no. right? No. You think of this is awful, don't you? The idea of this, but I tell you what, it sounds awful on paper, right? But listen to this first track, Paul. I want you to hear that. I'm desperate to get your thoughts right, on okay, this. Fine. Here I'll, we go. Here I'll we go. I'll listen. I'll listen. Here we go. Here's open. Oh my god. <laughs> what are you doing? That's just a wee sample there, Paula. Marks out of ten. Um, ten. Ten, definitely. Definitely. What, what saxophone were you playing? Well, uh, uh, Mike's remaining very, very, very silent throughout this because he might have played all the saxophone yeah. parts. I just, I was generally overseeing things, you yeah, know, generally yeah. overseeing things. Uh, let's, let, let's hear the next track on this one, Ron. Spin that. No, that's killer. Cool, nice. Why you've got Mike doing most of the work. That's pretty damn cool. It's you must more believable now, I've heard it. It's pretty Definitely. cool, isn't it? Ron, what's your thoughts? You're hearing that for the first time, genuinely. Ron, our producer, what's your, honestly, what do you think of that? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Mike's, yeah. Mike's the man. Right, last one, he's, he's put beer on as well. He did this all last night because I kept asking him, I just kept requesting he would do more for us, right? So we're maybe looking at the start of a, of a, of a tribute album. Right, here we go. Check this. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Yeah, I can see it happening now. Definitely. It gets better, check this, it gets better. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely working. I can see it, I can see it. On tour. The Saxon Five headline in the Horseshoe Bar in Coatbridge. Shut up. Alright, this is the, we, the, the heady heights that we are going to reach. This is going to be unbelievable. Me, Mike on the road. And they actually learned to play sax. You don't, you, can you play sax? No, no. Right, you're sacked, unfortunately, because we need a sax. Ron, you don't can even you play? play sax. Big deal, I'll learn it. I can play on the keys. Uh, that would sound Didn't absolutely horrendous. That, that, that would sound like the eye foundations. <gasps> Ron, would you, can you play a little bit of sax, would you think? I can't, no. No? No. I don't know what on earth we're going to do, Mike. I don't I don't know if we can even double up, mate, because you're going to be preoccupied. Yeah, I've only got one pair of hands, but, um, you know, I'm sure that with the... Looks like you guys are finished before you even started, eh? Well, listen, I can't be bothered with the actual scepticism today that we're going to be playing Coat Bridge. I tell you what, we'll be selling <laughs> out. We, we'll, be, we'll be the ones that will be doing 50 nights at the O2 in London. Now Jackson booked out the 50 nights and obviously, unfortunately, he was not with us in order to do it. But the Saxon Five 
are going to are going to get together and we're going to play those gigs and we're yeah. going to take over the world. Anyway, <laughs> enough nonsense. For, thank you, Mike. Enough nonsense for one day. We are going to get to the interview with Jennifer Batten. Looking forward to hearing what she's got to say. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with Jennifer Batten. How are you, Jennifer? I'm doing great. Very, very busy uh, schedule that you have um, for years and years and years now. You perform with many different people. Um, I want to know what it was like working with Carmen Apis. Fantastic drummer. I'm a big fan of his. Um, what was that like working with him? Loud. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I went to eat one of his gigs at uh, the Renfrew Ferry in, in Glasgow and it was it was extremely loud. Um, now, I've seen on the internet that you played with him. In what capacity? Did you record together? Did you play live? Uh, we only played together a couple times. One was um, a performance at the NAMM show with Tony Franklin on bass, which was a, a joy. And the other one, well, I played on his Guitar Zeus record. I think it was the title track. It was many years ago. I don't even remember. And I also did a um, a workshop with him at Musicians Institute with his brother. So I was between two loud ass drummers battling it off, and uh, Alfonso um, Johnson from Weather Report. And I'm a, Weather Report's my favorite band ever, so I couldn't turn that down. Fantastic. I remember his little brother was actually performing at that gig as well, also being a drummer. Now, um, like I said, very, very busy schedule that you have. Years and years ago, um, you were in seven different bands or six different bands at one time, I heard. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it was the Hollywood thing. Like, uh, everybody was in at least a couple bands because they were all pretty much all original bands and when you're an original band you don't work every week um, it's mostly showcases on the sunset strip and playing at the whiskey a go-go and um i even did the pay-to-play thing which was very short-lived <laughs> they, they they i mean there's so many bands and they want you to guarantee that you'll have a certain number of people so a lot of the the clubs will force you to buy tickets and then hopefully you sell them to your friends which I did that once and I was so over it. But a lot of people do it, you know, especially if you're in high school and you have a, a the whole high school full of friends that might come to the show. So six different bands at one point, and that was right before, uh, I think I'm right in saying, the Michael Jackson gig. Um, so how did that transition happen? Uh, it happened with one phone call, life-changing. Um, I came home from... Uh, I was actually teaching at the time, and I, I came home back in the days of answering machines with cassettes. <laughs> and uh, there was a message that someone from Musicians Institute from the referral service had left three messages for me saying, I, I got a gig opportunity for you. Call me back, call me back. And it was uh, an opportunity to audition for Michael. So... Um, I I called the the number to set it up, and ask when the last possible time I could do it was so I could stay home and work on tunes. And it was, I don't know, two or three days later, uh, I just did nothing but work on the tunes. And when I showed up, there was no band. It was just me and a video camera. So um, basically everything I had worked on went out the window. Um, I already knew the Beat It solo, and I ended with that because I thought he might find that useful. Uh, (laughs) Other than that, the only guidance I was given was to play some funky rhythm stuff. And so I, I started with that, and then I started soloing, 
I did the Giant Steps uh, tapping solo that ended up on my first record and ended with Beat It. I mean, the whole thing was probably 10 minutes. And two or three days later, I got a call that Michael saw the video and was interested, and it was a matter of me coming down and playing with the band and just see how it goes. And two months later, I was in Japan playing for 50,000 people. Wow, it was that quick? Yeah, well, that, that's kind of a long time to rehearse. It was a month with the band by ourselves, um, dancers by themselves in another room, and singers in a third room. And then the second month, we all came together, and it was the massive production studio with pyro and all the special effects. So there was a lot of... A lot of playing, but a lot of waiting around for, um, you know, these one-of-a-kind things to actually work. <laughs> oh, I get you right. So you were rehearsing solidly for three months. Wow, that's interesting. We're going to get back to Michael Jackson in a little bit because um, I put this on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you and we've got a lot of questions regarding MJ, so we'll get to that in a little bit. One thing that you mentioned there, Jennifer, you're talking about funky uh, rhythm guitar playing. Um, do you think there's a little bit of an art to that? Because I always find it rare that there's a guitar player that can do the, the funky rhythm thing and solo um, and a clean sound if you like, if you know what I mean um, so how do you find that do you enjoy playing the, the kind of rhythm parts and all the kind of funk stuff that you play oh yeah yeah. There, it's a whole other world uh, a zen world of groove, you know it's, it's so far beyond just learning the notes and the parts to uh, really listening to the bass and drums and and locking in. I mean, James Brown used to have his band go for an hour or two hours on a riff, you know, till you, you really transcend, get into the subconscious, really, and just groove and make it feel good. Um, there's a ton of people that can solo and, and can't you know, play a funky rhythm. And I, I think being able to play rhythm well really enhances your soloing. Because, you know, everything is bound to rhythm. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you've been kind enough to, to come on today with your guitar. Would it be possible for you to give an example of the kind of funky rhythm guitar playing that you're uh, alluding to there? Yeah. Well, let's take Smooth Criminal, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that would go on for at least two or three minutes while the dancers were doing their thing. So, um, and, and there was certain things like the Jackson 5 medley that we would do that I actually started using a medium pick. I usually use heavy gauge, but it was... So fast and so intense and so non-stop, it was just kind of killing my wrist. <laughs> so, I mean, just taking octaves. You take that for five minutes and your arm will fall off. A lot of his songs were much, much faster than the records. And it, it's common for people to take the tempo up a notch or two um, to make it a little more exciting for live. But, I mean, working day and night, it was like a whole other song. I mean, the, the original was working, working, working day and night. And not that I can sing, but. And then we started playing it live, and it's working, working, working day and night. Uh, and it's all we could do to, to keep up with it. But we had the, I mean, the groovinous uh, rhythm section in the world with Ricky Lawson on drums. We, we just lost him last year. Greg Fillingaines and Don Boyette. It was awesome. 
Yeah, an unbelievable band, and it's just it's so the it's very very inspiring when you watch from the the video footage when you see the band rehearsing and the depth of the detail that they go into. It's it's a lesson for for us all really. And um, Mike Smith on our Facebook page is asking, um, well, he's interested to know how much Michael Jackson was involved in the producing of the live show, obviously back in the 80s and 90s. Um, later on in This Is It movie, um, he was very hands-on. Was it always like that, Jennifer? Yeah, especially in the Bad Tour. He was he was there for every rehearsal. He worked his butt off. I mean, by the end of the, the month that we spent with him, we were running the entire show twice a day. And most everything was his idea. You know, he would hire people to carry stuff out, like... My look, for instance, he wanted that transformed. He wanted me to stand out on stage. So he hired artists to draw up a look for everybody and to draw up three costumes for everybody. They spent a million dollars just on clothing for that tour. Just insane, insane amount of money. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it was it was all his vision. He wanted it to be magical. Um, we had to sign a contract that we wouldn't tell anything that was going to happen because he wanted it to be a surprise when we first hit the stage. And, uh, you know, he'd, one of his favorite books was about Barnum and Bailey, you know, the biggest show on earth. And, you know, that was his focus and he made it happen. He was very, he was like a creative tornado in every sense. Uh, the, the music was only the foundation. And then he built a show from there. Jennifer, if that's not the best band name I've ever heard, the Creative Tornadoes, I think that that that, that could be a band name, no no question at all. I think you've kind of answered the next question, um, which was on um, again on one of our Facebook pages today. Um, if Michael Jackson was such a, a perfectionist in the way that a lot of people have alluded to, um, especially in the different DVDs, obviously he was a perfectionist. And judging what you're just saying there, yeah, uh, yeah, that. That term is so overused. Um, it just means he cared. You know, Absolutely, he had a vision. Yeah. And for instance, what one of my favorite um, stories about him is when he heard the mixes for Thriller, he had an absolute breakdown and made him redo the whole thing. You know, it wasn't his vision, which is really easy to understand because if you're not actually hands-on at the mix, it's going to be somebody else's vision. You know, but I, I think probably in the past with the Jackson Five, it's people would just mix it and it was done. But with Thriller, there was so many little nuances and things that panned in your head, right and left. That um, he he was just, and the mix can ruin it. I mean, you can spend three years working on a record and have somebody mix it and destroy it. So obviously, it was the right move to remix it because look what happened with Thriller. Absolutely, yeah, and a big thanks to Jamie Henry for writing in with that question. On the subject of Thriller, one of my favourite guitar parts, I don't know what it is about that verse, um, but I just love the, the rhythm uh, part. Is there any chance we could hear it just now, Jennifer, from you? Sorry, the rhythm to what? Um, and Thriller, the guitar part. Um, well, there's there's several guitar parts. Um and again that would go on for five minutes because of the dancing at the end uh, and then let's see uh, quite have the right sound but there was another one oh, wait a minute I got the wrong thing I just had my guitar worked on this is my Frankenstein guitar where I'm just doing all kinds of whack ass stuff to it Every time I come off tour, I go, oh, let's try this. 
So I just put it back together. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not quite the right sound, but there you go. It sounds it's, fantastic, really good. So what's the guitar that you've got at the moment? You think Is that a Frankenstein of different guitars? What are you playing just now? Yeah, this it started out as a Line 6 Variax, which is... Um, probably the highest technology guitar you can get now or it's it's a regular guitar with magnetic pickups but it also has virtual sounds in it so it's got virtual telecaster stratocaster les paul jazz guitars acoustic guitar models um and a sitar sound and dobro and on and on and on and you know i love the technology but i'm pretty set in my ways as to how i want a guitar to feel so I put a new neck on it and had that shaved down. I put new tuners on it. I just added a Fishman triple play so I can do wireless MIDI and access synthesizer sounds now. And uh, put my own pickups, my own bridge. <laughs> it's just, there's really only the body and the electronics are the same. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. A lot of people say that guitar players are never quite happy with their guitar and they're always adding different sounds and bits and bobs to it. But hang on a second, dear Jennifer, we're just going to advertise some of our previous episodes. A lot of absolutely brilliant previous episodes for you guys to go on to scottkiwi.com to check out. Episode 1, we had Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. 2, Huey Morgan. 3, we had Sandy Tom. Episode 4, Brian Ray from Paul McCartney's band. Episode 5, we had Orianthe. Bob Jacobs, the head spokesman of NASA, joined us in episode 6. Then we had Dr. Phil Toll, Metallica's therapist, on the week later. Week after that, we had the Grahams from Wet Wet Wet. Then Andy McKee, Steve Craddock, Cliff Goldmacher, great producer Steve White who drums with The Who Oasis and Paul Weller Then we had Martin Taylor, MBE Stuart Copeland, Dweezil Zappa Martin Harley, the following week That's episode 17 We had Julian Lennon on the podcast Week later, Carol Kay, Tommy Emanuel Khaki King, John Gom Nick West who plays the bass With none other than Prince Thomas Lang, phenomenal drummer, Rhonda Smith, Jeff Beck's bass player, she's an absolute genius and a very, very nice lady. Then we had Glenn Sobel, Alice Cooper's drummer of course, Graham Clark came on for his part two and broke down all those great hits. Then we had Ailey McKellar, fantastic blues guitarist, and of course this week, on episode 28, we've got Jennifer Batten. All episodes available at scottcowie.com, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, spread the word, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here, because we're building up something really cool, and check out those previous episodes when you can. You have done a lot of uh, kind of clinics and workshops in the past, you mentioned the Musicians Institute earlier, and you know, from what I've read, you've been in and out of there and teaching different people. What advice have you got just now for, for younger musicians that are trying to, to make it in the modern day industry, just generally? Well, as far as making it, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, you know, making a living at it, as opposed to being a giant star, I, I couldn't tell you how to become a giant star, you know. It's, it just kind of happens or it doesn't. I think it has a lot to do with your personal energy. Um but if you have a passion for music, just immerse yourself in it. And, you know, it's such a different time from when I came up. You can access anybody and anything on YouTube now. You know, so if you're into a certain guitar player, look them up, um, find a, a live, you know, video, and you can sit there and pause and find out where their fingers are and really dissect them like a scientist. You know, 
back in my day, we had the cassette decks and we had to slow them down, which changed the pitch. And it was, man, I went to great lengths to to learn the stuff that I really wanted to learn, including a VHS tape where you put it on pause and there's a big line across it. You know, <laughs> those uh, it got a, a lot easier these days. I mean, just about any pop solo that's out there, you're going to find somebody that's showing it to you. Not that it's necessarily correct, but at least it, you know, you, you can choose from several different sources and and uh, develop your ear by learning it that way. Absolutely. Now, a lot of people know you from obviously playing with Jeff Beck, playing with Michael Jackson, but you're a big jazz fan. What's some of your uh, favorite jazz jazz players? Um, I haven't been into that world for a while, but uh, when I was at Musicians Institute, one of the teachers, Joe Diorio was really into Charlie Parker and he had a class on Charlie Parker and John Coltrane so I, I'll never forget he said you know if it was up to me you guys would be listening to Charlie Parker 10 hours a day but you have all this other crap you have to do so I'll settle for two <laughs> and I I listened two hours a day coming and going from school I was about an hour away from school and I learned a bunch of his solos and it it really gave me a much better appreciation for jazz because when I went in that school I remember I would go to these live shows, jazz shows, and it just seemed like the the upright bass player was just playing random notes. <laughs> you know, I just didn't get it at all. So that year really developed my ear so I could understand what was going on. You know, it's kind of like watching the roller derby. I went to a roller derby a couple years ago. I think that I, I had never done anything like that. And I went and I go, okay, there's a bunch of girls going around in a circle. How can I be entertained for two hours? <laughs> you know <laughs> But there's a, a rhyme and reason, and if you're into it, you learn it and get into it deeper, which I never did. But um, jazz is a whole other thing. How did the Jeff Beck gig come about? I stalked him. <laughs> <laughs> I was a big Jeff fan for, for many years. I mean, he was like my guitar hero when I was 13, 14, when I f first heard Blow by Blow on the radio. That you know that stuff would never get on pop radio these days so it was a really lucky time to grow up in and um i let's see there was a um somebody that was in the the bad tour band a keyboard player that had worked with jeff and and jan hammer at one point and he said he'd introduce us because he knew i was a big fan and it never happened and i thought damn it so the next tour that came up, I knew we were coming to England, and that was my main focus of the whole tour. You know, all the Sony representatives that were at every show, I'd ask them if they knew Jeff or how I could get a hold of him to get him into a show. And eventually it happened. And unfortunately, the show that I invited him to, uh, there was two opening acts that went on, and then Michael canceled. So Jeff was turned away at the gate because he zoomed in last minute with his Batman Batmobile Corvette. Um, and I, I was so bummed. Um, I called him up the next day and said, you know, I don't know when they're going to make up the show, but could I meet you anyway? So I met him at a studio he was working at. He was doing a rockabilly record at the time. And I had just gotten a copy of my first solo CD, as well as um, MTV was playing Flight of the Bumblebee on the metalhead hour or something and I had just gotten a copy of an interview and the video for that so I gave them both to Jeff and got my autograph and thought that's it you know that's off my bucket list I'll never see him again but it was really cool and lo and behold he listened to my record and 
called a couple months later and said, let's do a record together. Wow. Which I never expected in a, in a million years. So that's how that happened. It was pretty magical. Oh, that's amazing. I watched a YouTube clip yesterday, you guys playing together, and he looks as if he's just having a great time. You guys had a great rapport together. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. It was really, really intense and loud. Um, I think half the hearing that I'm missing is due to those three years. <laughs> but he's a really fun guy. He's he's very wacky, and we, we had some good times for sure. In fact, he's coming to... Um, I, I live in Oregon, and he's coming here this summer with ZZ Top, so I'm going to see that. In fact, you know what? He's turning 70. No, Jeff Beckers. Yep, on the summer solstice. Yep. We were fortunate enough to speak to Rhonda Smith um, three or four weeks ago. I'm a massive fan of her bass playing, so um, no doubt she'll be playing that gig. She, she's great, eh? Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love watching her. I've seen her with Jeff a bunch of times, as well as with Prince. And she she just has a really kick-ass presence, plus she plays upright, you know, very, very sensitive, just like Jeff is. You know, you can take it from a whisper to heavy metal, and that's what she's very capable of. Plus, she can sing. Oh, so that's yeah. a, a fantastic singer, really, really good, a, a class act, without a doubt. Um, Thomas, on the, on the subject of Jeff Beck, Thomas Kearney writes in on our Facebook page, and he's asking how you approach... Um, gigs such as the Super Bowl and what the approach is um, differently from the likes of a Super Bowl and a more intimate gif, uh, gig with Jeff Beck. Um, is there, do you think about that a lot or, um, I mean, how does that approach differ generally? Well, you just kind of get immersed in the environment that you're in. The Super Bowl was really exciting because it was a, a one-off thing and there was a billion and a half people watching and just knowing that, Honestly, it's the only time I ever saw Michael nervous. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was, but he wasn't. He wasn't the same. It, even at rehearsals, um, you know, because it can't. You can't have a screw up. It's live to the world, and it could be the end of your career if something major screws up. So, thankfully, thankfully, the pressure was mostly on him. Um, we rehearsed. Gosh. It was so long ago. I don't remember. I just, I just remember it was fun because you have the time of a you know potato chip commercial to get that stage out there, and it was like Olympic runners that they had on each section of the stage, and they would, uh, you know, in my mind it could be all wrong, but it seems like they fired a gun, you know, like like a race, and when they said go, those guys ran with each part of the stage, and there was probably half a dozen parts, and they. We'd put it together, we'd run out, get on the stage, and go. So that that happened several times. It, and it was, it was just a gas because it was, you know, a one-off thing. You know, it would never happen again. Uh, so it was very memorable. I'm, I'm not into football at all. It, one of the things I remember, too, is when we first played in that stadium that was empty, the echo was so intense the dancers couldn't even dance. Wow. So they they had to work it out with delays to get rid of that. That was that was pretty eye opening. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely amazing to think this. Obviously, you've experienced uh, ten ten years with Michael Jackson, and there's so much within that period of ten years. Um, so did you get quite close to him um, throughout the time that you're working with him, or is it strictly business? Are you getting a much of a chance to hang out with him? How did it all come? Um. I would not say I was a friend. There was there was a hundred people in the entourage. Um, 
half a dozen people in the band, singers, dancers. And we took up three different hotels. Um, usually the roadies will be in a hotel a, a day ahead, or they'd be traveling on a bus overnight. And the, the performers and the makeup artists were in another hotel, and then Michael and the security were in a, another hotel. And in the beginning I thought, well, that's a drag. We can't hang out with them after shows and stuff. Um, but there was a couple times that we did. And that was a drag because there'd be kids hanging out all night long singing Billie Jean outside his window. And anytime any of the performers went anywhere, there'd be people following us, you know, into a bookstore, into a restaurant. And we got, you know, a very small taste of what Michael went through. So it was much more pleasant being in a different hotel. However, um, Michael would do things for us like... He shut down the Tokyo Disneyland so we could hang out together without the riffraff. <laughs> and he did that several times. Every tour, he had uh, different amusement parks that he would shut down so we could hang out. And uh, sometimes we were on the road during American holidays, um, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And so he would have a, a big dinner. We could hang out. But, um, you know, I, I never got to know him well. And everybody had access to talk to him, especially at rehearsals. But I always felt kind of uptight, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I never got into any deep conversations. Um, but he, he was friendly and he was open. Great. Very, very interesting indeed. Um, Sharon Martin writes in um, and she's asking what your thoughts are on the, the other musicians that Michael Jackson has worked with. Um, even the guitar players such as Slash, Van Halen and Orianti. What are your thoughts on all of those players? Um... They're all great in their own way. They all have their own personalities. Uh, I thought he was really smart to get Ori for This Is It, you know, because he, he wanted to uh, come out gangbusters. And like always, he wanted to have big surprises. So that would be a big surprise, having a, another guitar player and much younger at that. Um, Slash, I mean, he tended to get, as far as his videos and his records, he tended to get the 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 biggest presence on MTV at the time. You know, like Van Halen was the, the biggest thing ever when uh, Beat It came out. And then kind of after Slash came out, uh, then grunge hit. So there was no more Guitar Heroes, really. So he stuck with Slash for quite a while. <laughs> and then Steve Stevens also. Uh, Billy Idol was huge on MTV when he got Steve. So... Um, you know, I mean, they're all great players, but it also from a marketing perspective, it was really smart, too. Beat It helped him cross over to the rock audience, like, unbelievably. That was an absolutely brilliant move. Yeah, when you put it like that, he was just so smart over the years, just a great taste in, in musicians and just did the right thing at the right time. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, let's talk a little bit about your solo records then. Um, one guest that we had on again a couple of weeks ago, Glenn Sobel, who's a fantastic drummer. You've worked with Glenn. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the, your memories of that record? I, I didn't understand the accent on that last two words. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's okay. I, I, I sometimes sometimes forget that the Scottish language doesn't translate. Um, <laughs> one one of the guests that we had on a couple of weeks ago, yeah, Gl I got Glenn, Glenn yeah. So, um, what are your memories of working with Glenn and, and uh, recording uh, that record? Oh, that record was awesome. Um, because it was just the three of us, Ricky walking and Glenn and I, and... It's, it's so funny to think back because uh, we rehearsed in Glenn's mother's shoe closet. <laughs> uh, 
that's where his drums fit. I mean, you could not fit one more person in there. But he didn't tell mother- he didn't tell me that he didn't tell me that when he was on. <laughs> I probably didn't. Yeah, that's that's not too rock and roll. But his mother was a ballerina, so she had like hundreds of shoes. So it was a big ass closet. But um, <laughs> man, what a cacophony we we did. We it, it was really cool because I came up with most of the songs. In fact, all but one. And I just brought it to the guys and said, do what you want. So it was complete freedom. You know, I, I, I probably should have reined them in in hindsight because some of the songs are really long. And I didn't, you know, that's before you could really edit and chop easily. We were working on ADATs back then. But it was, it was really wonderful because everybody was into it because they had freedom. So Glenn, I know he stretched himself unbelievably and caused himself pain for the the parts that he came up with and uh for that reason i put there's no overdubs because it you know he's a human octopus so it sounds like there's there's a few different drummers there but when when i was looking for a drummer i asked terry bozio and he said glenn and i said that's enough for me wow yeah well i tell you what terry bozio's recommendation you can't go wrong with that at all (laughs) yeah one last thing, Jennifer, if it's okay, uh, no doubt you get requested to play this all the time. Um, the song that um, you played in the edition for Michael Jackson, you mentioned it earlier. If you can give us the Beat It solo, that would be fantastic. <laughs> all right. Um, That's absolutely brilliant. Jennifer, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Absolutely fascinating talking about Jeff Beck and Michael Jackson. And um, we'll need to get you on for a part two at some point, without a doubt. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Unbelievable stories here from Jennifer Batten. A great interview and very, very grateful that Jennifer joined us in the podcast. And of course, that she brought her guitar along with her. Paula, how good was it to hear the Be It Solo live from Jennifer? Oh, I, I could never have dreamt of hearing something like that, especially coming from the lady herself. That was fantastic. I and to think she's played that numerous times, and I was a wee bit embarrassed because no doubt many people over the years would have requested her to play that, but she was a good sport and she played it nonetheless. So it was great. Mike, fantastic interview with Jennifer. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, just them stories. I mean, imagine hiring three hotels out just for, like, one show. <laughs> it's unbelievable, really. But it just goes to show the scale of what was happening, you know. Well, I tell you what, just around the corner, before you know it, the Saxon Five will be doing the exact same thing. <laughs> we do hope to follow, to follow hotly in the footsteps of uh, Michael Jackson. No, without a doubt, it was so good. The, the massive production, and of course, she mentioned earlier she was playing a Super Bowl in 1993, and it was the first time that she'd seen, and first and only time she'd seen Michael Jackson nervous. A great insight, Paula. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. For us um, budding musicians, I think it's it's great to meet someone that's got so much experience and can give you such a good insight into you know what it's like going out there and and doing it for the doing it for real. 
I think the key thing is as well, she's very, very humble because one of my questions was um, yeah. give us the advice and what you would perceive as to, to how to make it generally. And she says, well, I can tell you how to make a living, not as far as, you know, being famous or being a star, but I can tell you how to make a living. And that's very humble coming from someone that's played with perhaps the arguably the greatest or the, the, the biggest pop star of, of all time. So without doubt, a fantastic insight into Michael Jackson's career and of course Jennifer's experience playing alongside him. Thank you very much to Paula right beside me here. Paula Weir from the band The Eye Foundations and of course Mike Smith. Now Mike, I want to get you on next week and bring with you, if it's possible, the guys from The Angry Men. We have got none other than Larry Graham, the absolute legend. Mike's a big fan, so we're going to get him back on next week, okay? And we're going to talk about all things his band and we're going to speak to the legend himself. I cannot believe I'm going to get to chat with the one and only Larry Graham. You can catch us at scottkibbe.com, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher Radio, download, rate, review, and particularly on iTunes, give us those five stars, and we will see you guys, Mike's going to join us, and of course, Larry Graham. Don't miss it!